You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates in campus news about Joyce McConnell's fall address. And I'll be updating you on the case of a Loveland police officer charged with assaulting a 73-year-old woman in local news. After that, Eliza Droder will update us on CSU's athletics, and then Collegian News Director Isaiah Dennings discusses his story on the Hughes-Landback movement. Then, CTV News Director Kenneth Frederick discusses ASCSU and other stories being discussed tonight on CTV's newest episode. Coda tells about new charges brought against police and EMTs after Elijah McClain's death and Texas's new abortion laws. Then, we hear about resources in the local community for survivors of interpersonal abuse and gender-based violence. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 statistics, and Ivy speaks to Hayden Holly about the Collegian's new cannabis desk. To conclude the show, Coda goes over Twitter's new super follow feature, and I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hey everyone, this is Ellie Shannon with your campus news for KCSU. We are at the end of our second week, and the Rams are preparing to take on South Dakota State University on Friday. Kickoff is at 7 p.m., and any CSU students should make sure to bring their RAM cards. Colorado State University, the City of Fort Collins, and third-party Cottonwood Lands and Farms came to an agreement on the former Hughes Stadium land. They came to a Memorandum of Understanding, or an MOU, meaning that the agreement proposes to compensate CSU and to provide an additional parcel of land. According to Isaiah Dennings of the Collegian, CSU would have to sell Hughes Stadium to the city if this were to happen. A citizen-initiated city ordinance was passed in April, with a 69% voting ratio going for selling the land to the city. More information is to come as more developments are made. For more on this story, stay tuned for Coda Babcock's conversation with Isaiah Dennings later in the show. According to Micah Bennett of CSU's College News, the School of Global Environmental Sustainability is accepting proposals for the 2022 Sustainability Curriculum Innovation Grants, which is partnered with the President's Sustainability Commission at CSU. This grant is for the faculty of CSU and aims to expand student exposure to sustainable concepts. The deadline to apply is October 1st. On Wednesday, September 1st, President Joyce McConnell held a fall reflection at Laurie Student Center. After 18 months of an ongoing pandemic, McConnell acknowledged the physical and mental hardships that many have faced. Anyone who attended was able to write a message on a small compostable piece of paper and bury it with a Bosnian pine sapling. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. And always make sure to tune in to KCSU. I am Ellie Shannon. This is 90.5 FM. Up next is local news. Hey there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for today. A Fort Collins teen arrested as a homicide suspect will be charged as an adult. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, Fort Collins police announced Tuesday that the teen suspect, 16-year-old Benjamin Swallen, has been formally charged as an adult with first-degree murder. Fort Collins police first arrested Zwollen at his South Fort Collins home August 17th as a suspect in the July 5th killing of 58-year-old Todd Stout. Stout was found dead with multiple sharp force injuries under a bridge just south of Harmony Road and west of Mason Street. Police said Stout had moved from Missouri to Fort Collins and was temporarily living under the bridge. The suspect currently remains at a juvenile detention facility without bond, according to court records. 
Police say they are continuing to investigate Zwollin's activities the days before and after July 5th. Anyone with information can contact Detective Julia Chenoweth at 970-416-2645 or provide information anonymously through Crime Stoppers of Larimer County at 970-221-6868 or stopcriminals.org. Zwollin is next scheduled to appear in court September 16th. A community-led effort proposing a sales tax increase to fund child care in Larimer County will not come before voters in November due to the community group and country not reaching an agreement in time. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, in early 2021, the United Way of Larimer County and Early Childhood Center of Larimer County convened a steering community to find a long-term systemic solution to providing affordable child care in Larimer County. Months of research and community outreach led the group to request that the Larimer County Board of Commissioners place an initiative on November's ballot asking voters to approve a 0.25% sales tax tax to fund affordable child care through many avenues, including workforce supports and subsidies for families. Christina Taylor, CEO of Early Childhood Council of Larimer County, said during an August 18th work session that the sales tax increase would have roughly doubled the funding for child care and early childhood education in Larimer County. Taylor says that the group called on commissioners to put the proposal on the ballot instead of collecting signatures because of concerns about COVID-19. Despite receiving informal support from many municipalities, including the City of Fort Collins staff and Loveland City Council, the proposal hit a snag with Larimer County commissioners and staff who had, concerned about, who, who had concerns about timing and how exactly the money would be used, according to United Way of Larimer County CEO Derda Sullivan. Commissioner John Keflis said during Tuesday's Administrative Matters meeting that, quote, we worked hard to try and make this work, but there were still a few outstanding issues and decision was made not to go forward in 2021 with this ballot initiative. Taylor said that the group plans to take some time to reflect on what didn't work with this proposal and regroup with the leaders and stakeholders in the community to decide how to move forward. A former Loveland police officer will continue to face an assault charge for his role in the brutal arrest of a 73-year-old woman with dementia last summer. According to Sadie Swanson at Molly Bohannon at the Coloradoan, 8th Judicial District Judge Michelle Brinegar ruled Monday that prosecutors presented enough evidence to continue charging Austin Hopp with second-degree assault for the arrest of Karen Garner, who is now 74, in June 2020. Prosecutors presented evidence during a preliminary hearing held August 19th, including interviews with two Fort Collins Police Service detectives who led the critical incident response team's investigations into the arrest, along with videos of Hop's interactions with Garner last June and his discussion with his colleagues afterwards. The footage shown at the preliminary hearing had previously been released to the public by Sarah Scheichel, Garner's attorney in a civil lawsuit against the Loveland Police Department. Because Brenegar hadn't seen the footage in full, the defense requested she not make a judgment out of the preliminary hearing until she had. Hop's attorney, Jonathan Datz, also claimed there is, quote, significant exculpatory evidence forthcoming. Datz told Brenegar on Monday that they're expecting a substantial new discovery, including hours of multimedia evidence in the next few weeks coming from the independent internal investigation into Garner's arrest. Hop is scheduled to appear in court September 29th, at which time Brinegar said she expects Hop to plead guilty or not guilty. If the case proceeds to trial, Brinegar says the earliest she could fit it into the court's schedule is early next year. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU. 
After the break, we're going to be hearing from our sports report. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm DJ Chaos. Catch me on Jock Talk Tuesday mornings from 7 to 9. I'll take you around the worlds of the NFL, NBA, UFC, and more here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Today I'm joined by Isaiah Dennings from the Collegian to talk about his recent story about the Hughes-Landback movement. So would you mind telling me a bit about that? Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Coda, for having me on. Uh, yeah, so my story is kind of about the Hughes-Landback initiative. It's kind of a push by um, Native American groups in the Indian Tribal Alliance to have CSU give back the Hughes Stadium land to Native and Indigenous peoples. Uh, their motto for it all is not just land acknowledgement, but land action. And so to kind of have the whole story of the land and like where its origins begin, it starts back in 1950s. Uh, the Hughes land was used as a storage space for the equipment that was used to make Horsetooth Reservoir, actually, back in 1950. And uh, after Horsetooth was made by the federal government, it was given to CSU since we're a land-grant university and um, they kind of regulate all that. Uh, Hughes Stadium was built in 1968, and so that land was used for that up until Hughes' destruction. And so now it's kind of just been sitting there as an open space, and ever since Hughes has been destructed, there's been this kind of social movement to give the land back. And um, CSU has kind of showed other intentions for the land. So they currently have a huge development plan that they're looking into for uh, creating off-campus housing for... um, workers, for students, and for uh, medical employees off campus. And so they wanted to develop that land, but uh, pushback from different groups have seen a different agenda for their land. So this leads to kind of um, the ballot initiative that was passed back in April of uh, this year. So the ballot initiative was passed, I think, in a margin of 60 to 30. So a good majority of people in Fort Collins voted to have the land be rezoned into public use open space, which means that CSU still owns the land, but it has to be used for a public purpose. And so that gets all dicey because CSU is a public entity. But so technically the land can't be used for anything private. So if they were to develop the land, it'd have to be for public use. That's the first part of the ballot initiative. The second part of the ballot initiative was that the city, in some capacity, would have to try to um, purchase the land. And so um, they've been currently in negotiations with the city, uh, the city and CSU system with 
how to buy the land because based on city council passing that initiative and the city, they have to try and buy the land. So, um, yeah, certain communications have been in place. That's kind of gone on all summer. There's been no real murmurs of that until this recent press release from the city of Fort Collins and uh, the CSU system on August 23rd that showed that they're in discussions. Nothing is in set in stone yet, but they're in discussions to sell the Hughes land to, to the city of Fort Collins and then have um, a third party sell land to CSU. So this is very confusing and kind of uh, just a lot of legal debacle, but essentially CSU will sell the land to the city of Fort Collins if they're allowed to purchase another land, which is basically on the other side of the town. It's on the east side of town. Yeah, on the east side of town. And so if they're able to acquire that land, then they'll develop that land for their whole development plan. That can be found on the CSU website for what they're trying to do with it. Um, so yeah, but there's still nothing really set in stone. We're just going to have to wait and see for, um, the negotiations become set in stone. But until then, we kind of don't know what the city's going to do with the land, whether or not it's actually going to be given back to Native Americans and indigenous peoples. We'll have to see, um, based on the negotiations. But according to the city of Fort Collins, they are in steady communications with different intertribal groups and alliances to create something equitable for the land and whatever the city does with the land they want to be they want they want it to be something they're proud of and so uh yeah that's kind of the whole story there all right thank you so much again that was isaiah dennings from the collegian and you can find that story at thecollegian.com we'll be right back Today, I'm joined by Kenneth Frederick, the news director of CTV, to talk about tonight's upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Coda. Uh, Tonight on CTV 11, our main stories involve controversies surrounding the ratification of the new director for the Office of Diversity and Inclusion for last night's ASCSU meeting. We'll also tell you about the future plans for the land of the old Hughes Stadium. You'll be getting all the CSU sportsville you could ever want in our new segment, Cam's Corner where Cam Evig will be breaking down everything you need to know for Ram football. Tom Isaacson will be telling us how students feel being back on campus this year, as well as all of the other great spice and entertainment. And we'll be right back. KCSU thanks Tribal Rights for their continued underwriting support. Tribal Rights is located on College Avenue in Old Town, Fort Collins, and is a full custom tattoo, body piercing, and jewelry studio. Learn more at tribalrightstattoo.com. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. 
As a reminder, if you missed any part of today's show, you can always go online to kcsufm.com news or search KCSU News on Spotify for the full episode. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is National News Highlights for Thursday, September 2nd. Up to 27 U.S. public school students remain stuck in Afghanistan. According to Deepa Shivaram from National Public Radio, mass evacuations from Kabul ended Tuesday while the California students remained. The students are part of San Juan Unified School District in Sacramento, which has one of the U.S.'s largest Afghan-American communities, according to NPR. It is unclear how students will return home in a Taliban-controlled environment, and the number of students remaining in the country is also unclear due to many being in transit. The northeastern U.S. is dealing with remnants of Hurricane Ida as they face massive flooding. According to John Bacon at USA Today, the northeast expects life-threatening and damaging floods to impact the area Thursday, with over 50 million people under flash flood warning. Watch starting Wednesday. AccuWeather senior meteorologist Dan Pitanowski said, quote, Many areas along the path of Ida are likely to have rounds of rain over a 12- to 18-hour period, but intense rainfall can last six to eight hours, end quote. In New York City, winds could reach up to 30 miles per hour, according to authorities. The winds are so severe that meteorologists believe a tornado is not out of the question for New York. Two million are still without power following Ida in Louisiana. The following story includes information about the death of Elijah McLean, a 23-year-old black man at the hands of police. This story is about a minute long, and KCSU-FM recommends informed listening for audience members who may struggle to hear more information about ongoing black death at the hands of police. Five have been charged in the death of Elijah McLean, according to Colleen Slevin at the Associated Press. Three Aurora, Colorado police officers and two paramedics face manslaughter charges. McLean died after being placed into a chokehold by an officer and being injected with ketamine at a dose much higher than the standard dose for human beings, especially of his size. McLean was 140 pounds at the time of injection and was injected with one and a half times the ketamine dose for his weight. Ketamine is used to sedate aggressive pe- people, but body cam footage did not show McLean as aggressive. He was originally stopped after someone called 911 saying he looked suspicious. Prior to his death, he volunteered at animal shelters and worked as a massage therapist. U.S. President Joe Biden condemned Texas's new abortion laws, saying that they violate the Constitution. According to Lauren Arantani and Marie Tuma from The Guardian, the new Texas law allows for any private citizen to sue abortion providers if they perform an abortion after six weeks due to an almost entire abortion ban in the state. This law allows for frivolous lawsuits from anti-abortion groups and is the most radical anti-abortion law in the United States. Texas Senate Bill 8 bans any abortion once cardiactivity in the embryo is detected. This can be around or just prior to six weeks. The law has no exceptions for incest or rape. The law is expected to force abortion clinics to close as a result, and most women are unaware if they are pregnant at six weeks. Dr. Gazale Moyedi, an abgen and abortion provider in Texas, said, quote, We are all going to comply with the law, even though it's unethical, inhumane, and unjust. It threatens my livelihood, and I fully expect to be sued. But my biggest concern is making sure the most vulnerable in my community, the Black and Latinx patients I see, who are already most at risk from logistical and financial barriers, get the care they need, end quote. That's all for national news. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Up next, we're going to be hearing from a podcast. And if you want to learn more about this podcast or the many others offered by KCSU, check us out online at kcsufm.com podcast. As advocates, a big part of our job is providing resources to survivors and supporting them through decision-making processes. 
There is not a one-size-fits-all solution to trauma, so we help survivors get connected to relevant resources for their situation. Just like most things, a lot of survivors' experiences don't fit neatly into one category. Some survivors have experienced childhood sexual abuse and relationship violence, while others have experienced stalking and sexual assault. And while some of these services might target one specific area of relationship violence, that shouldn't invalidate the complexities of your experiences. Today, we'll be focusing on a couple local and regional organizations here in Colorado who provide resources to victims and survivors of different types of gender-based violence. Interpersonal violence may impact daily life, whether it happened recently or many years ago. Each survivor reacts to sexual violence in their own unique way. So let's jump right in with an organization I've worked closely with for a few years. The Sexual Assault Victim Advocate Center, also known as SAVA, is located here in Fort Collins, as well as Loveland and Greeley. Similar to our victim assistance team, SAVA provides a free and confidential 24-7 rape crisis line, where advocates can provide crisis intervention and help survivors navigate the medical and legal processes. SAVA specifically focuses on survivors of sexual assault, serving as the only rape crisis center in Larimer and Wilds County. Another cool thing about SAVA is that they provide therapy services on an income-based sliding scale. In addition to helping adult survivors of sexual assault, the Loveland and Greeley office offers play therapy with trained trauma-focused therapists for child survivors. We know that trauma can happen to anyone, regardless of age or other identities. And we love that SAVA provides services to a range of survivors. And if all that wasn't enough, SAVA also does a lot of different types of prevention education. While prevention education might not initially seem like crisis intervention, it's important to disrupt our rape supportive culture and teach about healthy relationships and consent. And SAVA does just that. They have a lot of programs, such as their Super World Empowerment Running Program that helps kids aged 8 to 12 develop positive self-esteem and learn about healthy relationships while training to run a 5K. And their Sexual Assault Resource Team focuses on reducing sexual violence in middle and high schoolers. The SAVA Center is open Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. until 5 p.m. Contact them through their website at www.savacenter.org or their 24-7 hotline at 970-472-4200. Another great organization also located here in Fort Collins is Crossroads Safe House. Crossroads works specifically with survivors of domestic violence. Currently, they serve as the only direct service provider that offers safe housing, legal assistance, advocacy, transitional housing, and education to adults and children all under one roof. At Crossroads, they offer food, clothing, and support to over 500 shelter residents per year, in addition to providing resources for survivors in the community. They are also the largest service provider for victims of domestic violence in all of Northern Colorado. Similar to our victims assistance team, Crossroads offers crisis intervention with the Domestic Abuse Response Team, or DART. Their free and confidential helpline can provide services to survivors in 150 languages through a third-party interpretation service. Crossroads also has Spanish bilingual advocates on staff for in-person advocacy as well. DART advocates are on call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. In addition to their crisis line, 
Crossroads has a wide variety of services they provide to victims and their immediate family. One of the biggest accommodations they offer is safe housing. The safe house is located in Fort Collins, Colorado, where staff are available around the clock. At Crossroads, survivors can stay in shelter for two to eight weeks at a time. It's important to note that since a lot of survivors return to their abusive relationships for a variety of reasons, there is no limit to the number of stays in the safe house. You can return to shelter if a new incident of interpersonal violence has occurred, such as a new behavior or an escalation of a previous abusive behavior. If you're unsure if you qualify, we recommend talking to a Crossroads advocate or a WGAC advocate. Each family is given their own bedroom, while having support of other residents through shared living, dining, and children's play. In most recent years, Crossroads has been shifting their services to be more inclusive. They now offer gender-neutral restrooms, living spaces, and have tailored many of their forms to include inclusive language. Due to limited space and the need for safe housing, we recommend calling to check in about space ahead of time. One of the unique things about Crossroads is that they also offer legal advocacy and representation as a part of their services. Hey Rachel, what's the difference between meeting with a legal advocate and meeting with an attorney? That's a great question. We actually get this question frequently from survivors. And while the WGAC advocates are able to provide advocacy around a lot of topics, including legal advocacy, a lot of organizations have separate advocates for specific needs. Legal advocates are folks who can help assist survivors in navigating the legal system by accompanying and supporting them through their own decisions, but are not able to give legal advice. For example, a legal advocate can help walk a survivor through the process of getting a restraining order and help them understand what to expect. Or they could accompany a survivor to a court hearing so the survivor has a friendly face and a support person they can rely on during such a stressful situation. An attorney, on the other hand, is hired specifically to offer legal advice to their client. They are qualified and licensed to represent a client in a court of law or with legal proceedings. Since a legal advocate cannot give legal advice, if a victim is needing legal representation or has specific legal questions, advocates would refer the survivor to the Bringing Justice Home program through Crossroads. Bringing Justice Home is a separate program of Crossroads that assists eligible domestic violence, sexual assault, dating violence, and stalking survivors by providing no-cost, bilingual, civil, legal representation. While there are some limitations in their service, talking to a legal advocate can help you determine if these services can be helpful to you in your situation. Bringing Justice Home is a team of attorneys who directly serve Larimer and Weld counties. Crossroads offers support groups, which are designed to evoke positive communication skills while also developing and practicing healthy coping mechanisms. A majority of these support groups are only offered to residents who are currently living in the safe house, but there are some available to folks in the community. Similar to SAVA's sexual assault resource team, Crossroads has a high school peer education program called Time to Talk, which focuses on promoting healthy relationships in addition to other youth programming. If you'd like to learn more about Crossroads Safe House, you can visit their website at www.crossroadssafehouse.org or give them a call at their hotline at 1-888-541-7233. Similar to Crossroads Safe House, Alternatives to Violence, or ATV, is a nonprofit that provides free and confidential emergency housing in their safe house. 
They also provide advocacy, case management, and referrals to other resources. Alternatives to Violence is located nearby in Loveland and primarily serves folks who have been impacted by domestic violence, sexual violence, and human trafficking. ATV recognizes that healing from trauma takes time and looks different for different folks, which is why they have case management and advocacy services to help connect survivors to relevant resources. Here at the WGAC, we strive to provide intentional and relevant services to the survivors we work with. And it's great to see ATV being intentional in working with survivors too. Alternatives to Violence was initially started as a support group for survivors of domestic violence way back in 1982 and has continued to offer free support groups for survivors of violence. The groups provide a place for folks to be in community with other survivors and talk about their personal experiences, in addition to talking about topics such as why abuse happens, how to set boundaries, and self-care. We know how important it is for survivors to take care of themselves during the healing process. And support groups are a fantastic way to not only connect with others, but to connect with yourself. Speaking of connecting with yourself, just this year, ATV started providing counseling services for residents staying in their safe house. While counseling services are not yet something ATV can offer to all survivors who access their services, they are willing and able to connect folks to counseling professionals in the community who offer their services on a sliding scale and or accept Medicaid. And just like a lot of other organizations we are talking about, ATV recognizes the importance of education in changing our culture. They provide presentations about domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking to schools, communities, and professional groups. Alternatives to Violence is open from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Thursday and 9 a.m. until noon on Fridays. You can check out their website at www.alternativestoviolence.org or call their crisis line at 970-880-880. One, zero, zero, zero. There are so many great organizations here in Northern Colorado who are fighting for the same goal, living in a country free of gender-based violence. Courtney and I just brushed the surface with many of these organizations. We encourage you to visit their websites or call their hotlines to learn more. And now we'll be moving from Northern Colorado resources to talking about a couple organizations located in the Denver metro area. So let's jump right in. The Blue Bench was started in 1983, serving as the only rape crisis hotline in the Denver metro area. Fast forward to now, 37 years later, Blue Bench offers counseling services, self-defense classes, case management services, prevention programming, and male-specific counseling groups. Similar to the Sava Center, the Blue Bench works solely with victims and survivors of sexual assault. This grassroots nonprofit now serves nine counties throughout the Denver metro area, including Denver, Arapahoe, Douglas, Lincoln, Elbert, Jefferson, Gilpin, Broomfield, and Adams counties. The Blue Bench started a campaign, aptly called the Blue Bench Campaign, which aims to place at least 40 physical blue benches at schools, businesses, and government agencies as a way of identifying those who are committed to ending sexual violence in their community. The mission of the campaign is to provide survivors with a tangible symbol of that commitment. When survivors see a blue bench in their neighborhood or community, they can be reassured that it is a place where they can come as they are and feel supported and believed. Thank you for bringing up the Blue Bench campaign, Rachel. It's important to us at the Women and Gender Advocacy Center that survivors, no matter where they are on campus, know that we're here for them. 
In the spring of 2018, a Colorado State University student wrote a letter to the then president, Dr. Tony Frank, asking if the university would join the Blue Bench campaign and host a spot for the bench. Dr. Frank has always been very supportive of survivors of interpersonal violence and agreed to donate money to join the campaign. As a result of this student's activism, our campus now has its own blue bench located right outside the Lori Student Center next to the Women and Gender Advocacy Center satellite office. When it comes to prevention programming, the blue bench has a very similar outlook as the other organizations we've talked about do. They believe the conversation should start at a young age and teach children about consent and healthy relationships. At Blue Bench, they offer a wide variety of prevention workshops, ranging from middle and high school level all the way up to college and universities. They even have workshops specifically for businesses, bars, music venues, and employees to train them on the resources and by center intervention techniques. If you are in the Denver metro area and want to attend a workshop, are seeking services as a primary or a secondary survivor, or just want to learn more, their website is www.thebluebench.org. You can also call the Blue Bench at their 24-hour sexual assault hotline at 303-322-7273. Moving to End Sexual Assault, also known as MESA, is a rape crisis center located in Lafayette and provides their services to Boulder and Broomfield County here in Colorado. Similar to WGAC advocates, MESA has victim advocates who provide in-person advocacy, give information about medical care, make referrals for legal advice, and will support victim during a SANE exam. If you're interested in learning more about what a SANE exam is, check out my episode on sexual assault nurse examinations. If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted in Boulder or Broomfield County and are in need of a SANE exam, call Moving to End Sexual Assault and get in touch with an advocate and they can meet you at a number of hospitals. It is important for our listeners to know that not every hospital has the equipment or funding to provide exams for survivors. It can be helpful for survivors to talk to an advocate prior to going to a hospital to ensure that a hospital offers that service. If you're curious about SANE exam options here in Larimer County, we recommend talking to an advocate from the WGAC or SAVA. MESA also offers a wide variety of support groups to survivors who are looking for a sense of community through their personal healing journey. These support groups can range from 6 to 12 weeks and are located in Lafayette or Longmont. If you are interested in holistic healing services, MESA also offers acupuncture, trauma-informed massage therapy, and yoga classes for adults. Like a lot of other resources, MESA is working hard not only to focus on intervention, as they believe that prevention plays an important role in shifting our current rape-supportive culture. Similar to SAVA and Crossroads, MESA has a high school peer education program called Peers Building Justice, which focuses on educating youth about interpersonal violence and promoting social justice. Another youth program is called Men to Strengths Club, which gets the conversation started with young men about masculinity, healthy relationships, and how to combat against gender-based violence. Lastly, MESA offers training to the community to educate about bystander intervention and strives to empower community members to better support victims and survivors of sexual assault. Their website is www.movingtoendsexualassault.org. Moving to End Sexual Assault has a 24-hour sexual assault hotline, which you can call at 303-443-7300. They have victim advocates available seven days a week, 
24 hours a day. Since there are so many groups, I won't go into listing the days and times of them, but all that information is listed on their website. It is definitely worth mentioning that unlike a lot of support groups we've talked about today, WINGS has some requirements for their groups. For one, they strongly encourage group participants to be substance-free when attending the group and have no active substance abuse concerns. Second, they require that all support group participants have a therapist they are working with. That being said, they understand that not all therapists are trauma-informed, and even if they are, it doesn't mean it'll be a good fit. They have support specialists that can help navigate the process of finding a therapist and help survivors make empowered decisions about which therapist they work with. Additionally, while their group services are currently limited to Colorado, their support specialists can help survivors find resources in their areas. WINGS offers workshops, speaking presentations, and trainings to support systems, service providers, and community members to help educate about the impacts of childhood sexual abuse. WINGS also created an evidence-based handbook called Survivors and Loved Ones Guide to Healing to help survivors and their loved ones navigate the path of healing. Part of being a great ally to survivors is educating ourselves about the effects of trauma and how to provide support. And WINGS provides an opportunity to do just that. If you'd like to learn more about the WINGS Foundation, you can visit their website at wingsfound.org or give them a call at 303-238-8660. we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard about resources for intimate partner violence survivors with the Women and Gender Advocacy's We Believe You podcast. To hear the rest of the episode or more podcasts, check us out at kcsufm.com and navigate to podcasts. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports that 83.5% of on-campus students are fully or partially vaccinated, and 5.8% of students received an exemption from receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. 88% of Colorado State Universities are are vaccinated against COVID-19, and 7% of employees were given exemptions. New cases at the university decreased over the past few days, with under five new cases in the past two days among students. CSU reports a cumulative total of over 3,400 cases of COVID-19 since May 2020. To schedule screenings, upload vaccination information, or learn more about campus approaches to COVID-19, visit covid.colostate.edu. Larimer County and the CDC report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks indoors and in crowded outdoor settings regardless of vaccination status. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask or surgical disposable mask. Disposable masks can be adjusted by tying knots in the ear loops. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, considering requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited household. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms, and encourage remote working options for all employees. The high-risk score currently reflects a variety of issues facing the county in terms of COVID-19. 
Larimer County hospitals are at capacity, meaning that there are no longer enough hospital beds to treat patients. 91 COVID-19 patients are being treated in area hospitals. The county's case rate sits at 216 per 100,000 residents. And in the past week, 6.8% of all tests came back positive. The county reports a total of over 31,000 cases and over 260 deaths. The state of Colorado reports over 618,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 7,400 deaths due to the COVID-19. 3.3 million Coloradans are fully immunized, but over 36,000 Coloradans have been hospitalized. If you, if you haven't gotten your COVID-19 vaccine yet, the state of Colorado will now be giving eligible residents a gift card for getting vaccined that. <laughs> getting vaccinated at certain sites. The United States reports nearly 38.8 million cases of COVID-19 and over 637,000 dead as a result of the virus. In the past two weeks, cases increased by 18.8%, while deaths increased by over 97%. 42 states, as well as Guam and Puerto Rico, are experiencing extremely high rates of transmission. Pregnant individuals can receive the vaccine against COVID-19 without shown risk to pregnancy or fertility. Pregnancy compromises the immune system, making pregnant people more vulnerable to COVID-19 and complications than others. Information from today's segment from, comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, and National Public Radio's Coronavirus Tracker. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, now we're going to be speaking about the new cannabis section at the Collegian with Ivy Winfrey and Hayden Hawley. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey. Today, I am joined by Hayden Hawley, Cannabis Director for the Collegian, here to talk with us about the Collegian's new cannabis desk. Hayden, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So, would you be able to tell us a bit about what the Cannabis Desk is and what it's setting out to do? Yeah, certainly. The uh, Cannabis Desk at the Collegian is the uh, brainchild of our current editor-in-chief, Katrina Levy. And uh, she just wanted to, uh, you know, get in on the uh, whole cannabis news game that is uh, going on all over the country, but a lot of it in Colorado, because the uh, ground of cannabis is, is rapidly shifting below our feet. You know, there's news every day about, uh, you know, different states uh, you know, not just legalizing, but, you know, making different steps towards acceptance and uh, what have you. And it's just rapidly going from being a thing that was uh, prohibited to being a thing that's widely accepted. And there's a lot of news to cover there. It's constantly coming out. What would you say are some of the goals for your coverage at the Cannabis Desk? Well, a big one is, of course, to, uh, you know, cover all the cannabis news that's relevant to CSU students and uh, the citizens of Fort Collins in general. But another thing is just to kind of uh, make a point that um, cannabis is not or shouldn't necessarily be a taboo subject. You know, it's it's uh, uh, might still not uh, be something you you know want to discuss with your grandma. But at the same time, why not? You know, it's uh it's a plant. It's legal. Uh, people over 21 are allowed to use it. And, you know, it's something that uh, can be in the newspaper and can be discussed in mainstream culture. So what kind of stories have you covered so far? Yeah, so uh, we've done a lot of uh, stuff that relates to, uh, like I was saying, both culture and the uh, more technical side of it. Like uh, just last week, we did our first strain review of uh, Method Man's new cannabis brand that he just released. And uh, that was a lot of fun. But, you know, before that, uh, over the summer, we did this story on this law that was uh, passed by the uh, Colorado uh, 
you know, just legislature and uh, signed into law by Jared Polis that uh, restricted the amount of concentrate, uh, cannabis concentrate that any individual person can buy. And uh, really in Colorado specifically, it's such a uh, heavily regulated uh, cannabis market and the rules are constantly changing. So, uh, you know, what we set out to do is uh, just inform the public about that kind of thing. And uh, we're going to continue to do it. What kind of stories do you want to cover in the future? Well, that's an excellent question, and uh, if I knew that, my uh, job would be a lot easier, actually. <laughs> uh, really, just, you know, as cannabis news comes out, we cover it. I I, uh, I hope to cover exciting stuff, but, I mean, for that, you know, exciting stuff has to happen. I want to uh, explore the uh, subcultures people affected in practice by cannabis laws that we just see go into place, you know, uh, in theory, and, you know, we can guess the effect that'll have, but, you know, we really want to talk to people who are actually affected by it. And, uh, you know, I, I also hope to, uh, we want to represent the good and the bad of cannabis, you know, cover the, uh, the positives and the, the, the joy and the relief that it brings into people's lives while at the same time, you know, covering, uh, some of the problems it creates, uh, for, you know, individual people or, you know, for uh, many. What has the public reception been like so far to the cannabis desk and your stories? Uh, so far, it appears to be really positive. You know, every time people hear that the uh, that the college newspaper has a cannabis desk now, they get uh, they get excited. They go, "Wow, that's pretty cool." Which uh, you know, to go back to an earlier question, is a lot of what we were trying to do. We were trying to uh, kind of destigmatize, and people going to college in Colorado uh, can really effectively see that they're entering a world. Uh, not and I, by the world, I don't mean Colorado. Just uh, I mean the future. You know, they're entering a world where uh, cannabis is an accepted and talked about thing. I understand there's been a bit of time looking for volunteers. Uh, where would people want to go if they want to help contribute to the cannabis desk? Well, really, they can just shoot me an email at uh, cannabis at collegian dot com, and I'd be happy to hit them up and respond, get them uh, trained up as collegian writers and. Really, anyone who's interested in, in, in covering cannabis and all that that entails, uh, we'd be interested to hear from and be interested to work with. All right. Thank you very much. Again, I've been speaking with Hayden Hawley, Cannabis Director for The Collegian. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Hayden, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you again for having me. We'll be right back. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. This is Tech News for Thursday, and I'm Coda Babcock. Amazon plans to add 55,000 new employees globally. According to Claire Duffy of CNN Business, Amazon grew by half a million employees in 2020, including employees hired to replace former staff. And this will be the first hiring push with new CEO Andy Jassy, who was hired to replace Jeff Bezos in July of this year. Most jobs will be in corporate and technology roles, according to Jassy, and are intended to support the business's platform. Some reasons for the new hires include Project Kuiper, an effort by Amazon to launch small satellites into space to increase broadband access, and to keep pace with an increased interest in retail advertising and cloud computing. China now limits children to playing three hours of online video games per week. According to Sharon Pruitt-Young at National Public Radio, Chinese authorities created new roles for Chinese youth to curb video game addiction. The hours offered to Chinese minors are from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, as well as on any national holiday. 
China previously made similar rules in 2019 when they barred children from playing more than 90 minutes per day or too late in the night. With the new restriction, online gaming companies are unable to allow young players on on outside of weekend evenings from 8 to 9. Twitter has started to push out its new Super Follow feature, which allows some users to require a paid subscription to access specific tweets and media. According to Kate Sanchez at The Verge, restricted tweets will only show up in those subscribers' feeds, while unpaid and unpaid and unpaid and paid followers alike will see unpaid content. Users can make content specific to super followers by selecting their audience when they write a tweet. Currently, super follows are only available to iOS Twitter users in the United States and Canada. Users who decide to have a super follow option for their tweets can charge between around $3 to around $10 per month, but there is a lifetime earning limit of $50,000. Super follows are only available to people with over 10,000 followers, and they have to be older than 18. They also have to meet activity requirements on their account for the past 30 days. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, for weird news. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Sometimes things need to be a little bit weird, so here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world. A woman has been arrested for providing a fake vaccination card during travel after authorities noticed that the name of the vaccine was misspelled. According to Dylan Inchetta from Hawaii News Now, Hawaii state investigators said they received a tip that 24-year-old Chloe Morozak of Oak Lawn, Illinois, may have uploaded false documents under the state's Safe Travels program to bypass traveler quarantine rules. The fraudulent vaccine card, which was handwritten, had two significant errors that tipped investigators off. The first was that their card stated that Morozak had been vaccinated by the National Guard in Delaware, but no medical records in that state had a rec- any record of her visit. The second error was that Moderna was spelled correctly, incorrectly both times, being spelled M-A-D-E-R-N-A instead of the correct spelling of M-O-D-E-R-N-A. Rozak is being held at the Oahu Community Corrections Center accused of falsifying vaccination documents, which is a misdemeanor offense. Her bail has been set in two th- at $2,000. A team of researchers from Australia, Canada, and the U.S. have discovered that female octopuses throw projectiles at males who bother them. According to Bob Yerka at fizz.org, back in 2015, members of the research team recorded instances of octopuses throwing things at other octopuses. At the time, it was not clear if other octopuses were intentionally targeted or if it was accidental. To find out, they went back to the same site in Jervis Bay off the coast of Australia, a site where large numbers of Cygni octopuses live. In making more recordings and studying them carefully, the researchers were able to see that the female octopuses engaged in multiple types of object throwing. In most instances, throwing materials such as silt or even shells was simply a means of moving material that was in the way or when building a nest. Less often, however, they saw what they were clearly what were clearly attempts by females to hurl material at a nearby male, usually one trying to mate with her. In studying the tape, researchers found multiple instances of females targeting males. In one scenario, a female threw silt at a male individual ten times. They also had found that the males often tried to duck when objects were thrown at them, and were successful appro- approximately half of the time. They also noted that the throws meant to get rid of material were performed differently than those aimed at another octopus, involving tossing between the two front tentacles, 
while the pseudo-repelling projectiles were usually launched between the first and second tentacles. The researchers also witnessed one female toss a shell like a frisbee using one of her tentacles. Notably, they did not see any evidence of males retaliating by tossing things back at females who were targeting them. Hurricane Ida briefly caused the Mississippi River to flow backwards in a manner the U.S. Geological Survey has called extremely uncommon. According to Brandon Miller at CNN, Ida made landfall near Port Fortuyn, Louisiana, early Sunday afternoon as an extremely dangerous Category 4 hurricane with winds of 150 miles per hour, according to the National Hurricane Center. The hurricane arrived on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Scott Perrion, a supervising hydrologist with the USGS Lower Mississippi Gulf Water Science Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, says that, quote, I remember offhand that there was some flow reversal of the Mississippi River during Hurricane Katrina, but it's extremely uncommon. Perrion noted that the river level on Sunday rose about seven feet due to storm surge pushing up the river at the USGS gauge, located about 20 miles south of New Orleans in southeastern Louisiana. Perrion says that during that time, the Mississippi River slowed from its usual two feet per second to half a foot per second in the opposite direction. This isn't the first time a hurricane has made the Mississippi flow backwards. In 2020, strong winds from Hurricane Laura blew the top layer of the Mississippi River upstream. Ida became a Category 4 storm early Sunday morning, and is tied as Louisiana's most powerful storm ever, with the 2020's Laura in the last island hurricane of 1856, all with top winds of 150 miles per hour. That's it for Weird News. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And now, for the weather. Today was partly cloudy with a high of 84 and a low of 57, and there's about a 20% chance of rain today. Friday will be about the same with a slight difference in temperature and mostly sunny skies. Saturday will be sunny with a high of 84 and a low of 53, no chance of rain, and Sunday will warm up to a high of 91 with a low of 56, once again no chance of rain and sunny skies. Monday is almost identical with a high of 93 and a low of 56, and Tuesday clouds will roll back in with a high of 80 and a low of 57. And for Wednesday, you'll have to tune in on Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. or check us out on Spotify by searching KCSU News. I'm Gota Babcock, and this is your weekend weather forecast. Information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwab, Marie Tangsley, Melissa Ronaldo, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.